Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 344, and I had a conversation with ALH Robkin, also known as Nan, also known as Mom for me. Nan is an artist, illustrator, editor, poet, and retired classics professor and archaeologist. She's also, as I mentioned, my mother. (laughs) We discuss psychotic first husbands, World War II, family antics, missed opportunities, life overseas, uh, my lifelong appreciation of the human form, (laughs) disappearing children, bomb scares, historic moments, and more. It's a family reunion. Hope you enjoy it. It gets a little long-winded, I suppose, because when two people who really know each other get to talking, it can go places. But hang in there for some entertaining (laughs) stories, uh, for sure. It was a kick in the pants to have her on, and uh, I had my dad on the show a little while ago, and I wanted to have mom on as well. So hope you enjoy Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Hey Human Podcast on Instagram. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent album is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also check out my relationships and sex show Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at youtube.com Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show and it's a whole new year whole new pile of uh, folks to talk to really got some great conversations lined up so hang in there it's a bumpy ride with mom <laughs> no it's fun I'm kidding don't tell her I said that although she's gonna listen so sorry mom thanks for listening be well be kind be love here we go Dr. A.L.H. Robkin, Nan, welcome to Hey Human. Welcome to you, Susan, on my Zoom. It's nice (laughs) to see you. I like your new headset. It's very cool. Thank you. I got it just for you. You did? Yes, just for your interview. Well, that's cool. And you can can be a gamer now. For those listening, she's wearing a gamer headgear situation. It looks pretty Uh, cool. It couldn't be gamer. It was too cheap. <laughs> I mean, just the look of it. You look like a gamer. Oh, well, I'm always game. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for asking me to be on Hey Human again. Yeah, you were on episode 100 Origin Stories. For anyone listening that wants to go back and hear that episode with both my parents. Uh, and then I, I've singled you guys out. So now it's, it's you're on your own, kid. <laughs> oh, okay. let's get started how i start all of these uh where were you born where are you from i was born in coronado california 143 years ago (laughs) roughly you look good give or take yeah Yeah. and that's uh in case 
there's somebody on this planet that doesn't know where Coronado is. It's off the coast of California, opposite San Diego. Wait, is it on the water side? It's an, yeah, it's in the Pacific Ocean. It's an island. That must have been a cool experience to grow up there. Well, I didn't grow up there. That's where I was born. I grew up in mostly in Berkeley, California, because your grandfather was in the Navy. And so we moved around a lot. And they happened to be in Coronado when I appeared. And, <laughs> and I remember my mom, when we were stationed there another time, she would drive past this hotel and she said that used to be the hospital and that's where you were born and i thought great i you know so <laughs> it well, was fun to it was fun to see it. it compared to hospitals these days it was like you know probably your apartment building yeah you mean the room itself <laughs> no the the host, whole hospital was just a, an apartment building now Oh, oh, I man. see. It's probably yeah. been torn down and replaced with something fancier now. But I went to go look at dad's place where he and grandma and grandpa lived, uh, you know, his parents. In Hollywood? In Hollywood. And he, he was, as listeners know, he was born in New York, but they moved to California. And that is now a, a big, huge parking garage center for one of the studios. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, what? Nope brass plaque saying that's where he was born well not that i could see oh that's too bad, <laughs> too bad. <laughs> he will be disappointed <laughs> yeah. tell me about childhood growing up in berkeley oh berkeley well that of course it was world war ii we started off world war ii in honolulu and then in august of 1942 mama and i took a 19-day cruise across the Pacific on courtesy of the U.S. government to get back to San Francisco. And I was, what, nine or ten, nine. How was that experience? Oh, it was fine. I didn't get seasick, fortunately. We had to wear life jackets all the time, even in bed. <laughs> well, at least they had to be so we could get them on quickly because, you know, and it, it uh, going to, to Honolulu took five days on the uh, USS, on the SS, Matsonia, which was a, a cruise ship of the Matson lines. And uh, I went first class and I had a lovely time in that five days. And one of the stewardesses was, was uh, looking after me. <clears throat> and uh, that was fine, but it took five days. We were 19 days coming back because we were in a convoy and we had to zigzag and uh, you know every once in a while there would be a blast where, where they were shooting a mine that they saw floating around i mean it was pretty pretty interesting did you have an awareness at that age that we were in i mean it was wartime that you were in seas that could be bombed did, did oh, you yeah. Bomb? oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean when you go to school every day carrying a gas mask you're pretty aware that something could happen how does that affect you as a kid? Well, I think it did not give me PTSD. I think because I was so young, I was only nine, you know, at the beginning of the war and um, eight, eight when the war started, nine when we got home. It, it's just not, um, it, it, because the grown-ups were so careful to make sure that everything was as normal as possible for us kids 
I think we've managed okay. We didn't, we have memories. I mean, like uh, every December 7th, I post on my Facebook page some memories from that time. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult. I mean, there was rationing and the, all the men were gone to war and all of that stuff. But, you know, we just survived. And I think part of it was because of your grandmother who was probably the world's calmest person in the face of any sort of adversity. And she was very, very smart about things like that. And she managed to keep people in her orbit calm about it. And, you know, because like the night of Pearl Harbor, one of the neighbors wanted to go to the hills. And Mama said, don't be silly. They'll just... You know, they'll get you there just as well as here. You might as well stay comfortable. So, but mama did agree to spend the night at her house. So that's what we did that night. But it, it was, you know, an interesting, interesting thing to be at the start of a war. <laughs> I was just going to say, I remember as a kid, our neighbor her oven exploded and she oh, thought, yeah. she, she, thought she was dead and she came running over to our house. And I remember how calm you were in that experience. She was losing her mind. She thought she was dead. And I, rem I remember this really clearly. You took her into the bathroom to show her her reflection so that she would see that she was in fact alive and okay. And that calmed her down a lot. And I thought, wow, this is, you were so calm with her. Yes, and then trying to get her calm enough so I could break away and call 911. I should have sent you to do that, but... She was terrified. Oh, yes, she was absolutely terrified. And the fire department came and disabled that burner on her. So what she had done is she was cleaning the stove, and it was an electric stove, and she hit the uh, the lighter with the, with the cleaning fluid, and it exploded, and then right in her... And she wasn't burnt or anything, mm -hmm. but it was yeah. it was pretty scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that house had a lot of had a lot of issues. I remember when I was babysitting the kids next door when it was a different yeah, family, but, and yeah. one of them ran through the the, the glass pod. door. I was just thinking of that myself. I thought that that house was sort of doomed <laughs> for, yeah. for for rental. But but the people who are there now that bought the house they they've been there for oh gosh it must be 30 forever years they've been yeah. there forever yeah. uh, all right let's get back to you and and your childhood you tell such a great account of pearl harbor uh, being bombed you do it every year as you said on your facebook this year I actually copied in and pasted into twitter your account and i said this is my mother's account from when she was a little girl and a lot of people responded to it it got retweeted like crazy and oh really yeah, everybody oh. said thank your mom for that because we don't get this we don't get the perspective of kids from that time period, and so I think it's really great that you talk about it because history gets lost. Well, people, you know, there are a lot, not so many veterans from that war left to be to remind us, and I I think we need to be reminded especially because of the way the war ended and what has happened since between the adversaries. Uh, you know, the fact that the Japanese are one of our strongest allies now 
is just amazing. So we won the peace. Germany also. I mean, we won the peace. And that's really important. And we won it well enough that it hasn't been repeated yet. Fingers crossed. Yeah. As a kid, especially since you were in Hawaii and you were there when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and what happened in the spring with the concentration camps and the interning of Japanese Americans, how was, as a kid, with your friends who were probably there and Japanese, did you have an understanding of all of that that was going on? Well, no, because it didn't go on as much as it did in this in the continental United States. It what it um, and remember Hawaii was only a territory then. <coughs> we uh, what most of the small businesses like the little grocery stores and and shoe shops and stuff like that the the small businesses repair shops uh, things that were all owned by Japanese. So. <laughs> And and then they weren't Japanese Americans either. They were Japanese, so that um, that made a difference. And they couldn't send everybody. They didn't go. They kept those those Japanese were able to keep going and and keep their businesses open. And the the my third grade teacher, for instance, Miss Akai, was Japanese, but she was Japanese American. She was from the states. But, but seeing seeing what was going on in the Pacific Northwest and in Arizona and things like that, you, you must have known. Not till we got back. Really? Well, no, because it, it didn't happen around us. So they didn't talk about it. I understand it didn't happen in Hawaii, but I'm, I'm shocked that the, the people in Hawaii didn't know that it was happening in the... Oh, they probably did, but why would they discuss it with a nine-year-old, you know? Mostly... The orbit I was in was other Navy brats and, and um, excuse me, Navy juniors, it's Army brats. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we were sheltered somewhat because our parents were so calm about everything, even in the face of, of our actually, at the first part of the war, we were losing. And it wasn't until the Battle of Midway, as I mentioned in that in that thing that things were it became obvious that we could win and so everything sort of settled down better after that and people weren't so afraid and they have of another attack and thing did you have an understanding of nagasaki and oh wow i was i was a teenager by then dude. yeah i know but oh, again, certainly were- i understood you're being sheltered as well for that kind of stuff or if you got what was happening Oh, no, by then I was, you know, perfectly able to read the newspaper and listen to the radio and so forth. I I was, uh, uh, I guess, 13, 12. It struck us at the time. Now, see, there's been a lot of of anti-atomic weapon stuff since then. But at the time, it was the choice to preserve as much of our side as possible so by dropping it on hiroshima and that didn't quite work so then in nagasaki the japanese surrendered immediately and uh, truman insisted 
although the, the army and navy and the, the intelligence people wanted him to drop it on Kyoto, he said no. He said absolutely not. Because that was the place, uh, the cultural place. And that, that decision was a brilliant decision. And the way the, the uh, surrender was conducted was conducted with the utmost of dignity and respect for the Japanese who had to surrender. And, and I think all of that was carefully conveyed to us back home through the newspapers and the radio. And of course, there was no TV, but it was just, you know, it, it was horrible, but it was necessary. And because it happened, it hasn't happened since. Well, it's not happening now, but, you know, and, and <laughs> the, the, things you, <laughs> the things you remember, like I remember we lived in Berkeley with my grandmother and aunt for a while, mostly during the war, up until about 1946 when we went to Guam. But while there, living there, my, uh, there was a... Uh, a uh, cyclotron up in the Berkeley Hills, which was supposed to be top secret. Well, all us kids used to go up in the hills and we'd play behind it, you know, and, and <laughs> play in the, in the, <laughs> what were really weeds up in, up in the hills behind the cyclotron. And it was supposed to be a complete secret. And then one of my <laughs> colleagues in, in, in the high school <laughs> built a model of the cyclotron. <laughs> you know, and, and it just caused all kinds of havoc. And then there was a, a slight accident. Uh, and um, I remember your great-grandmother, Bam Bam, picked up the phone and called Edward Teller, who was responsible for the H-bomb, but which was in development at that point. And asked him if the accident, nuclear accident, would hurt her chrysanthemums. <laughs> and he said, Good God, madam, and hung up. <laughs> How did she have access to him? Oh, well, she had access to everybody. She was a former newspaper woman and she had, she, you know, she knew incredible numbers of people. So she just called him up. She was not very, shy and retiring your great-grandmother she was a force of nature even as yourself <laughs> wasn't she a suffragette <laughs> oh i'm sure she was there would have been if she'd been old enough but it was our our my great my great great two greats grandmother okay. your great 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 grandmother who was a suffragist in chicago and a poet of some renown then although her poems are a little bit over the top right now you know if you read them now they're really uh, you get the sense of the fashion of the poetry of the time but it it, it wouldn't fly today <laughs> seems that we have quite strong stubborn women uh, down the line oh yeah oh yeah your grandmother of after whom you are named was a my great-grandmother uh, your grandmother my grandmother after whom you were named susan she was a crack pistol shot and a champion at that. And I remember Mama telling me they were driving along in Samuel, the black, the black Model T, and they came and it was rainy and nasty. And they saw up ahead there were there was a 
tree across the road. And so they were a little worried. So my, my grandmother, Susan, rolls down the window and has braces her and the gun in her hands and she's going to defend them. It's a single shot pistol. Anyway, it turned out to be that the, that the men around the tree were getting it out of the road. But Mama remembers her mother saying, Anne, Anne, do you think it's okay to use both hands? And she's trying to hold it on the window. And another, another time, my mother, who was a camp counselor, and because she was a camp counselor, she had to have a commercial driver's license because she had to drive the kids back and forth places. So she was going across the Rocky Mountains on the Greyhound bus when the driver pulled over and said, is there anybody here with a commercial license? Now, this is the Rocky Mountains back in, in the 20s, you know, so uh, not like it is today. And so mama confessed to having such a license. So she stood in, she sat in the driver's seat and steered the bus full of passengers while the, while the driver sat next to her and shifted the gears going over the Rocky Mountains till they got to, to this next stop when he got a new driver. Cause what happened was is he'd had appendicitis and one of his stitches popped and and so he couldn't he couldn't turn do the turning without a problem so mama did that but mama your 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 grandmother was a big woman i mean she she was five feet eight and and weighed considerable so she she was not uh, skinny. Uh, sturdy i believe yes the- well zoftig is what you know what your grandfather would have said how did they meet Oh, that, that's a great story. Mama was invited to go to meet a friend of her friend's brother's friend at the Naval Academy in, in Annapolis. And uh, this person she was to meet was starring as Mommy Pleasant in The Cat and the Canary. Because, of course, they didn't have any women in, at the Naval Academy in those days. So, he came out to meet her. He still had his makeup on. This is, this is in 1930, before 1930. So. And so, that's how your grandma met your grandpa at, on a park bench. Well, he was, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he got back into his midshipman soup or not. That's a fun play, by the way. It really is. It's a mystery. And it's, it is kind of fun. The Cat uh-huh. and the Canary. I forget who wrote it, but, it, you know. I'll have to check it out. Uh, and was it Love at First Sight then, or did they have a long courtship? Well, I, they probably had about a couple of years courtship because, because nothing could happen until he graduated. He couldn't, they couldn't marry, of course. <clears throat> so he didn't graduate till June 1930. So, right after he graduated, they eloped so he could get the allotment for having a wife because he had to pay off the debt for all his uniforms. They don't supply you with uniforms. You pay for your uniforms. So, but they were engaged by that time. Is that still the case, I wonder? That's interesting. I always thought those were given to the soldiers. No, it, it, the GIs, yeah, but these are officers. They pay, they pay for their own. Oh, wow. 
gold mm-hmm. braid and all. And where was Granddaddy in the birth order? Of which? Which birth order? Of the seven children your great grandmother had? Yes. He was the oldest boy. I didn't realize uh, Great Aunt Quail was the eldest child because she outlived nearly everybody. She outlived nearly everybody. Yeah, I think Forrest, Forrest was still alive, was the only other one still alive when Quail died. Yeah, and Quail, she was a character. I liked her very much. Yeah, she was something else. She was, speaking of strong women, uh, head of household for herself and Bam Bam, and who was not Bam Bam yet, and her two youngest brothers in Berkeley in the uh, during the Depression. See, we have a we have a pretty good heritage actually with some crazy wonderful people. Yeah. Or should I say wonderful crazy people? <laughs> Everybody listening is like, this is getting way too confusing. All right, let's get back to your story. <laughs> so, uh, what was Guam? I'm on the last time I talked with you on the show, you told the story about stealing, <laughs> about how the the Navy would steal from the Army. <laughs> the- oh yeah, yeah. Grandma hijack. Yes, my. My mother, your grandmother, and the boss's wife, the captain's wife, were at the commissary when a semi-truck loaded with plywood parked in front of the commissary. And it was an army truck, and the driver and his helper got up and took the cab away and went off into the sunset, as it were. So Mama and Annie Grace looked at each other and they said, hmm, a semi-load of plywood and all it has is a flat tire, an army semi-load of plywood. They have to go 32 miles to get a new tire. Our base is six miles away on the phone. So they went into the commissary and called up and pretty soon a, a cab came out of semi, you know, the the the. Came along with a tire and changed the tire and drove off with the summer out and all of the houses on our on our housing area got finished and that was a great thing and semi I well until just you know a few years ago there was no road all the way around the island so there was a an about a five mile stretch that had no road. So in that five-mile stretch, which was just beyond where our housing area was, where our base was, there must be several uh, interesting vehicles that nobody knows why they're there, such as a semi-trailer that used to have plywood on it. <laughs> wonder what happened to the Army guys that lost their truckload of plywood. Oh, and they came back with the tire. What? Oh, we don't know. Nobody knew a thing. Nobody had seen a thing. Uh, <laughs> they probably had to clean some latrines for a while after that. Well, it was, it, it, well, the, you know, getting supplies on Guam at that time was not, you know, it was kind of an adventure. Like when they built our house, <clears throat> one of the toilets, the bowl came from one island among the Marianas, the tank from another. I mean, just got it where you could. <laughs> well, how long were you on Guam? Two and a half years. 
I remember you telling us when we were kids that you drank Coca-Colas all the time. Oh, yeah. I had at least 10 or 12 Coca-Colas a day. A day. It destroyed my teeth, of course. When I came back, I had to have 32 cavities filled. Why did you not? You, was there not clean water? Oh, there was water, all right. But uh, there was no milk. Interesting. No. So what did the kids do for calcium and things? The best they could. There was something called Avocet that you could get that was pretty vile. And there was, you know, you got your calcium from other things like meat. Mm -hmm. Do you have good memories of being on Guam? Oh, yes and no. I mean, it was, it, I have interesting memories. I remember the typhoon where they were, where our houses were being built. And one of the things that we had were walk-in reefers which are about the size of your apartment <laughs> and he, anyway so the one of the boss's house which was right across from ours was bigger so we set up three or four cots in that because it wasn't connected yet and we spent the typhoon inside the reefer <clears throat> which would have been too heavy for the thing to blow away anyway and um, <clears throat> that i remember you could hear the wind howling and then when the eye of the storm passed over you dead silence and then howling again it was very interesting uh a later typhoon uh destroyed that whole that whole area but it was a nice nice area it was uh right under the mountain it was the place where the last big battle on Guam had taken place and there was one Japanese soldier who refused to believe the war was over and he he just surrendered I don't I think within the last 10 years I don't remember I remember reading about it and thinking oh very good I'm glad he got was <laughs> I always wondered what happened to him but we used to leave food out for him in the back of our house because behind our house were all the trenches that that and you'd find the occasional sake bottle empty of course how old were you at this point oh 14 15 16 i i had my 16th birthday on guam and then we came home shortly after that and you were a debutante were you not no but i could have been but mama when i got to be 18 we were in new york by then when i got to be 18 mama made the executive decision that i would not be a debutante and i sometimes wish i had been just for the hell of it you know because i wasn't the debutante type mind you uh but it would have been my uh, many of my relatives were as like your your great grandmother susan was the first modern queen of the veiled prophet's ball and uh, mama my mother your grandmother was a special maid at the veiled prophet's ball in her in her her debutante year <clears throat> well mine came up and mama decided that i probably wasn't a good candidate for that i, I was too I, I was a political junkie even then and so she i think she was afraid i would disgrace the family i might have i you never know being you mean being liberal to their conservative no just being outrageously uh non-conformist let's say the veil prophets were recently in the news yeah uh, because it turned out to be a 
uh, a racist sort of thing. But we never knew that. I mean, I never heard that before you told me. Yeah. And in fact, Susan wasn't the only queen in our family. I, I traced no. back. There was uh, one of the founders of the thing itself was one of our relatives, which I found surprising. Oh, yeah. Socrata, whose portrait is in storage even as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Socrata. McCreary and her husband in- instituted it or were part of the founders that instituted it. I mean, we have um, a very interesting family with yeah. interesting things uh, on both sides. The, the interesting things happen to uh, our family members. Yeah. Yeah. You mean both sides, your mother and father? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, for sure. Yeah. So we don't know much about my father's history because World War II kind of took care of that. All right. So graduating from high school, did you have it? I have two questions about that. As you're growing up through this family that is a long line of military families, did you have a sense of order and discipline that is required in those kinds of families? Or were you more of a, uh, like Maria from the sound of music? (laughs) Well, more like that. Um, no, I never even sort of, I knew about hierarchies and so forth, but you know, one of the things about the military is the men are the ones with the, with the commissions and Women are just married to them or their children, you know, and or the and also there are sons as well as back daughters. then you mean not anymore. Yeah, but yeah. Then. yeah, sure. Well, but but you you're a civilian and so none of that it, uh, really filters down to you. You ha- if you're living on a base, then of course there there are rules you follow. If you're not, then uh, you just do whatever anybody in the neighborhood would do. Susan was a good military wife. Was she the one that had the Thanksgiving story? Yes. I mean, the two turkeys. That's a great story. Yeah, that is. That Will is. you tell that story? Yeah. Well, Susan was hosting my grandmother, Susan, your great-grandmother, Susan, was having a, a, uh, a dinner party at Thanksgiving for the the. The base, uh, she was married to the chief of staff on the base, and so she was expected to entertain considerably. So they were getting ready to eat, and Lula tripped on the doorstep coming in with the turkey and dropped it on the floor. And my grandmother said, oh, that's all right, Lula. Just take that back to the kitchen and bring in the other bird. And nobody knows that there was another bird. That's a brilliant response. <laughs> well, there's some crazy stories like the the uh, people who had the that set of Chinese furniture that's against the window in our house. Uh, Aunt July and Uncle Charles. And Uncle Charles passed on and Aunt July was entertaining people. And... Uh, one of the guests accidentally knocked this one of these uh, urns off the off the uh, hearth, and ashes spilled out everywhere. And Angela said, "Oh my goodness, Charles's ashes!" And she went and got the vacuum cleaner and scooped it all up. And the guests were all horrified. I mean, <laughs> turns out that every night after dinner, Uncle Charles 
stood with his back to the fire and smoked his post-prandial cigar, and they would tap the ashes into the urn after. <laughs> Hilarious. So after after the explanation came out, people calmed down. But it must have been it must have been a very hilarious moment. I've always wanted to see that written as a movie scene. Yeah, that would be a great. But you'd have to be in the right kind of movie. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to see everybody at the Thanksgiving table about to bite into the turkey that they're unsure of whether there was a second bird or if that was in fact the bird that had been on the floor. I love well, I'm it. sure Lula washed it off. Of course. <laughs> Such quick thinking. Yeah. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to, quote unquote, be when you grew up, when you were getting ready to graduate from high school? Uh, no. In fact, I was completely clueless. <laughs> My mother, bless her heart, enrolled me in college, <laughs> which I found out. When I got to New York, from I was staying with my grandmother and aunt again because uh, you don't want to go from the West Coast to the East Coast and change schools. Going from the East Coast to the West Coast is all right because you're ahead that way. But if you go from the West Coast to the East Coast in those days, uh, you were behind because there was all kinds of things going on in, in the uh, world of education in California, for instance, like uh, inventing new ways of teaching reading and new ways of teaching math, neither of which, the particular ones that I was involved with, neither of which were proved to be very uh, efficacious in the long run. But anyhow, so I stayed to graduate from Berkeley High. Mama had, had applied to several colleges in alphabetical order in New York and Connecticut, and uh, the one that accepted me, I went to. Which was? Adelphi. Adelphi College in Garden City, New York. It's now a university, and it has another campus somewhere else on Long Island. It was very interesting because that school, the entire school, had fewer students than my graduating class in, in Berkeley. What I really wanted to be was famous. In what? And I had been doing pretty well in, in drama in high school. So I majored in drama in, in, at Adelphi and graduated in three and a half years because I kept taking too many classes. And then. And then so you were acting? Oh, yeah. I acted and I did all sorts of stuff, built scenery. I knew you did set design. Yeah, and lighting and stuff like that. Then I came back to Berkeley again. Um, I forget why that was. Why well, I was back at Berkeley. But Mama and Daddy were off doing some. Anyway, they rented me an apartment right next to the University of California on the top floor of the apartment house. University of California kept calling to me, but I got a job at the Sethergate Bookshop thanks to my Auntie Quayle. And I walked across the University of California campus to get to work every day. And by the way, didn't Beverly Cleary also work at that bookstore? Uh, yes, briefly. Definitely. And she also was, uh, I re remember when I met her, she was pregnant with her twins. She came to visit in the store one day. <clears throat> and uh, she, was a, she was a lovely lady. She really was. Anyway, that was before she had written about, about Ramona. 
some, well, I got involved with a lot of the students from the School of Architecture, which was right across the street from where I lived, because there was a, a um, I don't know what you'd call it, a greasy spoon or hamburger joint, <coughs> hamburger joint in the same block with my apartment house where we would go and have hamburgers and we would meet and they would have folk dancing and folk music and this was remember this was when the beat generation was going on with one of whom i was which by the way i even was at ferling getty's bookstore and heard what's his face ginsburg read poetry and stuff like that so you know i mean it was kind of fun but I lusted after studying architecture all of a sudden. So I applied and I got accepted into the School of Architecture at the University of California. So I quit my job and started that and ran afoul of engineering and mathematics because I am dyslexic as didn't know that, but I was and I could not do mathematics. I still can't. And what, what was interesting is I had to take things like calculus and pre-calculus, let's say, and stuff like that. The, the architecture stuff itself, I had no trouble with, the design and all that. I did that with sailing colors, but I could not do the math and engineering. And at that time in California, if you wanted to be an architect, you had to take a lot of engineering courses. In fact, if you know you went one more semester, you could be an engineer as well as an architect. So, so I was doomed for that. So I got married, which was a mistake. <clears throat> and uh, that was your first that first husband. Those listening who just gasped, you <laughs> would say that. Yeah, about my so, dad. It wasn't to my father. No, 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 no. It was a practice, and it wasn't very. Turns out he was a psychopath. He's one of those charming psychopaths, you know, the guys that go into a, a small town and become the town doctor and never saw a medical school in their lives, that kind of person. And they went to work, I went to work in a bookstore again, but this time across the street from where I'd worked before. And uh, we had a nice little, a little cozy little one-room apartment <clears throat> with kitchen and bath. In uh, on the other side of the railroad tracks in Berkeley, which was fine, and a very nice landlord who, because my husband had an aversion for getting up and going to work anywhere, he lost job after job. And we were only married two and a half years, and I think he had eight jobs. At least you and, got out fast. Well, and alive, which was kind of lucky. And then he decided we were, he wanted to have a baby. And I had one, thank you very much, already, thanks to him. He was the baby. But he uh, punched a hole or two in my diaphragm, with, and I got pregnant. <laughs> so, the, that... Do you want children, ever? I mean, you I and I have talked them? about it, that you never really wanted kids. They just sort of happened. No, I didn't want that kid. But I mean, once he arrived, it was fine. I mean, I loved him and everything. But no, I had, I knew that it would be, you know, a, a terrible mistake to have kids with my husband that I had right then. He was eight months old when I divorced his father. 
and went to live with your grandmother and and grandfather in Corte Madera. My mother decided this was a son she never had, so she took over raising him while I went to school at San Francisco State. And at that point, I was in a depression all the time. So I don't remember much of what happened in those years, but I did graduate eventually. <laughs> what do you master's. think brought, what brought on the depression? Oh, PTSD. Hmm. Yeah. And I was always subject to depression uh, as I was growing up. When I was a little teeny kid, two or something like that, I had pernicious anemia. And my father had malaria in Panama. And my mother went to stay with my father in Panama and left me with your grandmother, Susan, and Colonel Alec. And I think that started the the depression business. Maybe it was anemia. Maybe it was the fact that my mother disappeared. And I was too young to know what was going on. I was only two, two and a half, three. So what was was the colonel nice? Hmm? Was the colonel a nice man? Oh, he was lovely and a wonderful carpenter as well as a terrific person. But he was very taciturn. Name in a moment in history that really affected you to this day. Well, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was probably the one moment in history that affected me more than anything. And uh, and second to that would probably be JFK's assassination. And Sputnik. Sputnik really spurred it on. Got How everything so? going. Well, it it made uh, everybody sit up and take notice for one thing, because something a new a new horizon was open, a new world was open. There, God knows what man couldn't do after that. You know, when JFK was shot, I was sitting in my car, listening to the radio, waiting for the electrician to come and install washing machines or turn on the electricity or something when the bulletin came across and I ran across the street to the neighbors and we watched television for hours and uh, you know and, and electricians did come and then I went back and watched television till daddy came and it, you know it was I will not forget that and I remember Walter Cronkite you could almost he, 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 I, the man was crying inside, and you could tell. And they're talking about releasing the papers, the, the investigations and so forth. And I don't think that any conclusion, you know, everybody has conspiracy theories about what happened. But I don't think any conclusion was ever drawn, or we would have heard about that. Did it change the way you saw the world around you when that happened? Well, it called... <laughs> In a way, yes, because I I was just appalled that something like that could happen here. I mean, I was a grown woman, of course. I was. This was when I, we were at Corte Madera, and I was 
you know, I had Matthew and I was going to San Francisco State when this happened. And no, that's not true. That was the Cuban crisis, which I also remember. What I remember about the JFK thing is when you, then when we got back to the house, which, you know, we were renting and we were vacating and the, the uh, owner made some remark about how lucky it was that this had happened. And I, that right then I saw, I had a vision of all the people who hated JFK rejoicing. And I was just sick to my stomach. I was just. That their humanity. Yeah. He was the president. It doesn't matter whether he was a Democrat or Republican. He was the president. Yeah. Yeah. What What do you remember about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh, watching Kennedy make the speech about it, about how to tell and telling Khrushchev that you know get them out of there or else. And at that time, we were able to. Uh, I mean, you know. We could have followed up on that, especially since half of Cuba was Guantanamo Bay, <laughs> mm -hmm. where we were pretty well, pretty well situated. So you were in California, which in in the part of California which was pretty liberal. And what when Dr. King was assassinated? What was your experience of that? Horrified, just horrified. Um, anytime. Something like that happens. And Medgar Evers, you know, he was up here. But those, those are just really, you know, horrifying things that happen because they are so unnecessary. It's just so out of the, out of the, out of the question. You should not have to face something like that. But Bobby Kennedy is the one that really got me because it was on my birthday. And I was looking forward to him as president. I mean, the world would be so much better place if he had gotten to be president. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. He would have made an exceptional president. Because he was one of those people of power that had compassion. Mm -hmm. it was, what Teddy said about him was, you know, was so, so true that he saw wrong and tried to right it. And he saw what other people said, why he said, why not? All that. I will not forget that. Do you remember when, uh, when we took our first steps on the moon? Yep. Can you talk I about that? I was in Greece. I was in Greece and I stopped on the street to watch in the television along with a whole bunch of Greeks. And every, you know, they were so proud of it. It's almost, it was interesting because they were so proud as if they had done it themselves. And the Greeks loved JFK. They adored him. And so when I go to, went to Greece after that, I always took some JFK 50 cent pieces to give us tips. And I imagine those are framed on walls, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. What, what made you decide then to go off and get a doctorate? Oh, I, it was handy. I mean, the school was, I'm, you know, I love learning. It's one of my favorite things to do. So uh, 
when your father got appointed to the University of Washington and was asked if he wanted to stay with tenure, and uh, he decided he wanted to, then I had an opportunity to, uh, I, by then I had my master's degree from San Francisco State in drama. And so I went to, I, I enrolled in the university as a fifth year matriculated, post-matriculated student or something. It was a special category for people who come back to school after a small hiatus. And so I was in the drama department and I got to work for the costume department as a costume assistant. So I got to learn all about constructing clothes. And even when I had done drama before, I never admitted that I knew how to sew because I knew that being female and so forth, I would end up in, in the sewing all the costumes and not doing much else. So what I did in, in San Francisco State was become a lighting designer, and I lit about 40 productions while I was there. And I got my MA and my teaching certificate because my daddy paid for my education as long as I agreed to get this teaching certificate, which I used maybe twice to teach as a substitute in various high schools and a couple of the high schools in, in uh, Marin County. But I got it, and it was a, a general secondary because one of the things trouble with me is that I have to know everything, right? And so I studied, I studied science, I studied uh, literature, I studied sculpture, I studied speech and drama, I studied everything. So I had a general secondary, so I could teach anything in high school, science, anything. I have memories. So granddaddy died before long before I was born, but I have memories of you with slides. I just remember you taking a gajillion photographs and there were always photographs of archaeological places on the walls of the house growing up. And you died. Yeah, well, we went to yeah. Cambridge as our, you know. That's you, where I started school. Yeah. 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 At three and a half. Oh, and I have some stories about you, which I will not relate on this. Oh, you can tell that story. It's fine. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's not, it's not really appropriate, is it? For this, no, this trust audience? me, they've heard everything on this show. Okay, well, when you were three and a half, my friend Irene came to visit us in Cambridge, England. I thought that was in Greece. No, that was in, uh, uh, this was. Oh, a, okay, got it. Yeah. Oh, you mean the time you climbed up the side of the Sunian temple? And no, not the guards that grabbed you to before you, you know, <laughs> that was, that was scary. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. No, but I know this, I, for some reason, I thought the, the story you're about to tell in the museum, I thought I was uh, older for some reason. Maybe you were four and a half. Yeah. Well, you were four. Let's say, let's settle on four. Okay. And I remember uh, I don't. Uh, one of the things I remember about getting there to Cambridge was that you ran all the way to England. We were on a 747, and we were in the middle section, and you ran up and down the aisles the whole nine hours. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't recall you ever putting uh, your head down and going to sleep. It was. <laughs> 
you were pretty exhausted by the time we got there, which is probably a good thing because then we didn't lose you in the airport. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I had a tendency you, to run away from you guys a lot. I think. Yeah. Well, you, you were an adventurer, I believe. Yeah, yeah, well, it, I used to say of you that you, at any one time, you had one toe on the ground and the rest of you were off somewhere. But anyway, here we were in Cambridge and you got started school. And one of the things they did in the uh, school you went to was they had swimming lessons. And the boys and the girls got ready for swimming all together in the same room. Yeah, boys and girls together. So you had a pretty good knowledge of anatomy, even at the age of four. And I remember my friend Irene came to visit us in Cambridge. She was on her way to Greece. And uh, we went to the Cambridge Museum with you, because what were we going to do? We couldn't leave you home alone. God knows what you would have done. And <laughs> so we start off, and we get to the door of the museum, and you say, Oh, I just love coming to the museum and looking at all the penises. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I, turned, I don't know I, that story. I thought you were telling a different story. I turned to my friend Irene. I said, do you know this child? And she said, I never saw her before in my life. I said, neither have I. And of course, the guards, because you and I had been going to the museum a lot. <laughs> the guards all knew us. You know, and they are all going. <laughs> Not much has changed, Mom. <laughs> when you decided to pursue the architecture, archaeology, ah, what brought no. what what brought that on? Well, I've always been since I was ten. Uh, when I lived with Annie Quayle, and Annie Quayle had a massive library, and I was allowed to read anything in the library didn't matter what it was so i read interesting things but one of the things i read was gilbert hyatt's greek drama translations and i fell madly in love with the greeks earlier because annie quayle used to read me the story of uh the trojan war and the travels of odysseus and i fell in love with odysseus at, very early on and so I was always geared toward the ancient Greeks. So when I got to to uh, the University of Washington as a matriculate student, I uh, decided now's my chance. But for, I, I didn't get to do the Greek until about the the second year I was there, and by then I had was in a graduate program. And to be in the graduate program, you had to have a you had to have a certain level of classes. You couldn't take, for instance, one hundred one anything one hundred one. You had to be three hundred or above. So fortunately, they had a class in Homeric Greek that was a three hundred level class, and only three hours a week. So I got I got started with Homeric Greek, and then. <clears throat> proceeded through the classical, the archaic and classical periods and into Hellenistic and modern Greek because for my dissertation, I had to know five kinds of Greek. I had to be able to read and understand Italian, French, and German. And so <clears throat> with the help of a dictionary and some, some really uh, wonderful 
faculty members at the U, I managed to get through all that. And uh, my dissertation was on the Odeon of Pericles, which uh, was a, uh, a building built in the fifth, fifth century. Like, yeah, four, four, about 425, and um, by Pericles, and was supposedly for the uh, singing contests at the city Dionysia and so forth. Well, that building has 96 interior columns, and you're, you're a singer. How would you like to stand in the middle of a hall with 96 interior columns and try to sing? Yeah, that's a lot of bounce back. You betcha. You had said the first time you went to Greece, you didn't need any maps or anything. You felt like you knew it inside and out intuitively. Well, I felt that I'd always been there. So I'm curious, aside from dad and your first husband, uh, were you ever in love with anyone? Oh, of course. I've, I fall in love all the time. I still do. But that's different. You know, it's not like, you know, if, if you're married, you can fall in love all you want, but you don't do much about it. Just enjoy the feeling. Yeah. Do you think you have regrets at all about having kids, like have, taking that path and doing those things when you could have done all these other things? Well, I don't know that I could have done all these other things. I don't regret having my kids. I enjoyed I enjoyed them as they were growing up mostly except when you and jeremy would get into fights for dinner all the time <laughs> but then you know you were you wanted to do everything jeremy did and jeremy was six and a half years older and he wasn't having it although he was pretty good he let me do a lot of stuff with him but i think well, there was let some... you steal his car well he didn't let me i just stole it there's a difference <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i didn't drive no that's true <laughs> tracy tracy drove we hey we had to serve our penance yes you did <laughs> so it's fine for those uh -oh. listening we, we had to walk everywhere that we had driven jeremy's car wearing signs that said i will never joyride again <laughs> but we and actually really had, we had a great time on that walk so i don't know how much punishment it was it rained on us and we had a big time people honked at us and we waved <laughs> it was big fun <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but you never stole a car again. Hmm. Not Jeremy's. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Never stole a car again. Oh, <laughs> yep, yep. No. Yeah. I, I mean, the problem with being a hyperactive child is you do things that, you know, and I, I, cur I was curious, hyperactive, uh, and I guess in some ways fearless. And that combination. Well, you never met a stranger. That Still used to haven't. scare us to death yeah. when you were little. And I'll never forget how disappointed you were when you found out that all museum guards didn't carry candy in their pockets to give little girls. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't hop in a van anytime with like the free candy on the side. Oh, but, well, you yeah. know, yeah. Do you remember getting trapped in the British Museum? No, I don't well, know. That's that was on the way back from Greece. We were in the British Museum. And there was a bomb scare. And the British Museum has huge, huge oaken doors. I mean, they're about 20 feet tall. That I, and of course, they're probably not that tall, but, you know. And they all slam shut. 
Well, I was in the gift shop picking out picking out uh, postcards for my collection, and uh, I thought you were with your father. Well, he and Jeremy thought you were with me, and you were with neither of us. Do you remember this? Do not have any remembering of this. So when the doors opened again and Daddy came to the store and no Susan, we uh, thought, where would she go? And so we decided that we would go retrace our steps of what we'd been doing before the before we separated into two, supposedly two groups and not three groups. Anyway, so we go back to the Egyptian exhibit, and there, there you were standing there looking at a sarcoph uh, at a uh, mummy with the Egyptian guard who was explaining to you what everything was and i walked over and to thank him and so forth and i noticed that the mummy's penis was gold-plated and i thought to myself what if she sees that <laughs> what is <laughs> but apparently you didn't and i felt a vast relief as we thanked the guard and took you away <laughs> <But> <laughs> That was lovely. You're gonna have fun editing this here. No, it's I don't I'm not ashamed. I, no. I I remember being obsessed. I mean, I was obsessed with Greece, but I was obsessed with Egypt. Obsessed. Yes. And that's why you were there in that room. And the guard had taken you around and this was the PS de Resistance. You had been through all the exhibits because it was closed down for a good hour. And he had you, you know, you know. That must have been very strange for a guard to have a little kid who was that fascinated by. But oh, actually, little kids are pretty easily. Little fascinated. kids are pretty pretty fascinated by almost anything. Yeah, like yeah. that's exotic. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah, Egyptian things. Yeah. I don't think I don't remember having a dinosaur phase, but I certainly had an Egyptian phase and a and a Greece phase and you know, a, a little orphan Annie face. I remember that, but yes, that's a other story. Jeremy says you used to yeah, make open him the window to this very room and sing tomorrow out the window. Yes. And, uh, and maybe I think as well. Yeah, yeah. I drove Jeremy insane. Um, but that's okay. That's what little sisters are for. Yes. Uh, if you were to do your life all over again, what would you do, make different? Well, I don't know that I would do much different because part of the thing that happened with me was because of my depressions and so forth, I often didn't have any initiative. And so what I had were seized opportunities. I mean, living across the street from the School of Architecture, having a parent who wanted, who wanted a son and had a daughter and took care of my son while I went to school at the one place that was easy to get to. I mean, it just, you know, it's just those opportunities. Coming to the University of Washington was because your father got an appointment on the faculty here. So, it and teaching art history at Seattle Pacific because a friend of mine needed a replacement and thought of me. To do it it was a part-time gig and i you, you know i had a good time 
doing it. That's where all the slides were for. Uh, are you happy with the way things turned out for your children? Well, I would have been happier if things had turned out for Matthew earlier. I mean, I, I was really, it was really too bad that it took a stroke to turn him into a decent person. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of his problem was he was just too smart for the known world. As far as that goes, it always gives me sort of a kind of a grim satisfaction, if that's a, not to, to look, me, look myself up on Google and see what has happened to my contributions to scholarship. And I get cited all the time, and I think, well, I guess I contributed something to the... Yeah, you edited books, you illustrated books about art and architecture. Uh, I remember an orange cover one. That, that art and archaeology in the Mediterranean world, yeah. I was the uh, editor and illustrator for that. Yeah, you're an incredible illustrator. I, in fact, I asked Big Brother Matthew uh, last week, because you paint, I remember this, for one of his birthdays or Christmas or something, he, he loved where the wild things were. And I remember you sitting at the kitchen table with the book and you were looking at the book and you were freehand drawing all the wild things on a mug that you were going to later or fire. Yeah, fire. And I, I remember thinking, my God, how is she doing that? How is you, you weren't tracing or anything like that. You were just looking at the images and then recreating them around this mug. And I thought, shit, that's impressive. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I can draw anything I can see. I'm lucky that way. Yeah, yeah I can't do that. I mean, I can kind of make a, a ugly facsimile. I'm an abstractist. Yes, you're an abstract artist, but you're a brilliant abstractist. Yeah, and your sense of color is beyond belief. I mean, you just you just do it, and and you never had any training in it. I uh, actually, uh, it's funny because I've never. It's weird to grow up in a house. I always say, you know, I'm a good writer because my mother was vicious with the red pen. That's what I tell people. But I wouldn't trade that because it taught me so much about writing. And now my my best friend, Ellen Severe, is also an incredible editor. And if I am stuck on something between between Ellen and you, I feel like I've got it covered. Yeah. Um, for well, rules and regulations and words and things, but well, you had a natural talent for writing, and you you brilliant. You're a brilliant comic, by the way. Thank always, you. you always were. When your goldfish story was, I still remember that. I will not forget that ever, ever, ever. That might be a, so one of those things only a mother could love, but I feel what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, your vocabulary, of course, partly is because nobody ever talked down to you. Nobody in in British British getting your start in the British education system was a good thing because they expect you to understand everything they tell you, and uh, you, you did. <laughs> well, having academics as parents didn't hurt, but anyway, we're way off track. Okay, so back to you. Um, so no regrets. No, I don't have any regrets. If I had it to do over, and I was in, had a different mental health issue i mean didn't have the mental health issues that i had i would have um i would have been fine i would i would probably have been a, become a bronze age archaeologist mm. or something like that and i would not have ever married and i would probably spend most of my life in greece doing that you know but yeah. 
I don't regret what happened to me. I mean, I have, I've had lots of interesting adventures. I have had, I mean, I've traveled the world. I've been, I've been, I haven't been to Japan, my regret to say, but I've been to China. You can go see your grandson in Japan. Yeah, but I'm a little old to travel that way now. I mean, I would never, you know, I just, I would, I would love to have done it, say, 20 years ago, but not sure. now. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe in God? I believe in ghosts, yes. I've seen ghosts. I dream about them, too. But, I mean, I have visitors uh, of people that I knew that have died occasionally in my dreams and and um that's i find that fascinating and also um do i believe in god well something had to start the big bang i think the fact that we have never been able to find out what it was is instructive and we may never no matter how we try I mean, we can go back and back and back and back, but we have to build an even better telescope than Webb to do that. And there's no, no incentive to do that right now. If, if reincarnation is real, do you want to come back once you finish this lifetime? Sure, why not? It's more to learn. Yeah, I don't know uh, whether, you know... Oof. But I'm not sure that I haven't reached the limit of my coming back. I mean, I'm sure I've been here before. I, I, I never did that regression stuff. or other. I just have this feeling that, you know, some things are familiar that shouldn't be. Things like that. Like my Mycenae. I do not decry people who believe in psychic things and so forth because I believe in them myself. You know, and I... I it, I think there's a whole lot of stuff out there that bombards us with that if we have sense enough to feel it or hear it or see it, it's there. We just have to recognize it. Would you like to read a poem? Oh. Oh, here's one that I wrote that I love a lot. What do I care if the world ends tomorrow? What have I got to lose? A little less joy, a little more sorrow, such alternates as I might choose. I know there's a book that I never might read, but I've already read one or two, or else there's a book that I never might write. Could that possibly matter to you? Such things as I do are accomplished today. What I don't do may never be done. So I'll live out my life in my usual way cramming six days together in one. <laughs> I like it. Well, mom, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really fascinating and I appreciate it. It was good to have you on the show again. Well, it was good to be here, dear, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm sorry if we got off topic once in a while and you have to edit us out, but it's that's okay. the way it goes. That's the way yeah, it goes. It's been fun. <laughs> oh, goodbye, everybody. I hope you love my Susan's podcast because she's a brilliant interviewer. <laughs> Thanks, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Bye.